0: 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He says, and sent his Son. To be the propitiation for our sins in verse 10. Beloved, if God so loved us in verse 11, we also ought to love one another. In verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. John returns to his favorite subject. And maybe for some of you, it's your favorite subject. It's the subject of love. In broad categories, John has been writing about remember what it means to have fellowship with God, And fellowship with each other. And when John uses that term, he means relationship that is informed by intimacy that includes proximity and communication. So fellowship is something that you do. Relationship is something that you have. John has provided tests, a moral test of righteousness, a doctrinal test of truth, but also a social test of love. What are the proofs that a person really loves the Lord? What are the evidences or proofs that a person can give to demonstrate that they really love the Lord, that they love God? And so John brings up the reality. Have you experienced his love by being born again in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3? Have you turned away from sin and its enslavements in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9? Is your life marked by love in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 17? Do you have a clean heart, 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 24? A clean heart means what we might call. A conscience that's clean. Have you tested the false teachers in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6? Do you really love one another in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21? Those are the tests. Six tests. John argues that loving one another proves that we're born of God and know God in verses 7 and 8. Loving one another proves that we see God's love in verses 9 through 11. Loving one another proves that God's spirit is really inside of us in verses 12 through 13. So in the writings of John, we discover some important things about the nature and the character of God. It's the question that everybody has and everybody asks, What kind of God is God? We know that God is a spirit in John chapter four, verse 24. When Jesus met the woman at the well and she asked the question, where should I go to church? Where should I worship? You know, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship in Gerizim. And Jesus, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, refused to be drawn into the debate about that. Rather, he said, the truth is of the Jews And he said that God is a spirit, a spirit being. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So in John chapter 4, verse 24, we learn that God is a spirit. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we learn that God is light. And now here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we learn that God is love. He is a spirit. He is light. He is love. And so a true understanding of God must include the revelation that God has provided for himself in the Bible. And so the fountain or the source of love is God. William Barclay writes, quote, we are never nearer God than when we Love, unquote. So love is a dual relationship to God. It is by knowing the Lord God in Christ that we know God and learn to love in verses 7 and 8. And then we learn that love comes from God. So think about this for a moment. The source of love is God. When we have love in our hearts, it leads us. God, And so in verse 7, the source of love, look what it says. Beloved, this is John's term of affection. Let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. One of the ways that I would think about this is in verses 7 and 8, God proclaims his love. There's so much that we could say about this verse. In the world, some people think of love as human feelings. It's affection or compassion. For some people, it's sexual expression. There was a very famous atheist named Richard Dawkins who recently had a stroke and some people in the Church of England tweeted out, we're praying for you and it created a firestorm. They were wondering, is this true? Is it genuine? Are these people making fun of their atheist combatant or are these real Christians who are really praying for him? And there were even some atheists who were saying, how dare you pray for someone who doesn't want your prayer, value your prayer, Believe in your prayer. And you know what's interesting? Richard Dawkins is an atheist. And he certainly doesn't believe that there's a God. He doesn't believe there's a heaven and he doesn't believe there's a hell. But you know what Richard Dawkins does believe? He believes in compassion. And even though he doesn't believe the Christian and he doesn't believe the Bible and he doesn't believe what the Bible says, He made the statement that he welcomes people's well wishes and compassion. Don't you find that interesting? That even the unbeliever knows that there is something about love. If you ask the question, what is love? You're going to get lots and lots of answers. If you can go all the way back in time, poets have written about it. If you fast forward to the 50s and the 60s, I can Tina Turner, or at least Tina, used to sing, what's love have to do with it? What's love but a secondary emotion? You already know the song. <laughs> what's love got to do with anything? Ask a thousand people and you'll get a thousand answers in our culture love is often defined in terms of what makes a what makes a person feel good in the demise of our culture making a person feel good means Don't tell them about the truth about Jesus. Don't tell them about sin. Don't tell them that certain behaviors are wrong and you've already gotten that. You've already understood and maybe you yourself have experienced, I can't really talk to this person about this particular subject because it might offend them. So imagine you're unwilling to talk about the truth or you're unwilling to talk about Sin or you're unwilling to talk about Jesus. In 1973, the year I got saved, I was a junior in high school, and the Justice Department brought a very young man under investigation with the allegations that he was a slumlord. On Valentine's Day, a young man proposed to his girl as they sat overlooking a beautiful lake. He said, my darling, I want you to know that I love you more than anything else in the world. I want to marry you. I may not be rich like Donald Trump. I may not have properties like Donald Trump. I may never wind up on TV like Donald Trump. I might not have a private airplane like Donald Trump. I may not have fancy limousines like Donald Trump, but I do love you. And she thought for a moment and she said, I love you too, but tell me more about Donald Trump. (laughs) It's really interesting to me what people think. Real love, according to the Bible, is holy and just and perfect, and it reflects the nature of God and the character of God. Human affection is different from divine love. Let me help you understand it. In the world in which we live, most people characterize human love or human affection in terms of reciprocity. That means what you give and what you take. We're loved, and so we love in return. But divine love isn't a response to someone or something on the outside. According to the Bible, God is the source of love. And love is the expression of his nature. When you think about all the attributes of God, his holiness, his power, his sovereignty, his omniscience, which means his knowledge of everything. When you think about all of the attributes of God and we were to try to think of a singular attribute that is subsumed, if you will, under all of the other attributes, according to the Bible, it is love. It's God's love that informs his sovereignty. It's God's love that informs his wisdom. It's God's love that informs every other attribute of God. And because God is love, and remember according to the Bible what love is. Love is more than just an emotion or a feeling or a sense of affection. Love is a willingness to do what's right towards the person who is loved. And you know what else I think? I think when the Bible says that God is love, it is one of the most compelling theological arguments to believe that there is such a thing as a Trinity because love becomes impossible unless there's a subject and an object. If God is a self existent singular being, to call him love is absurd because what does that mean? That he loves himself? But if the Bible's revelation concerning the nature and the character of God is true, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, there's a singular God. There's not three gods. There's one singular self-existent God who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And according to the revelation that's in the Bible, the Father has always loved the Son. And the Father and the Son have always loved the Spirit. And the, the Son and the Spirit have always loved the Father. And so now, all of a sudden, the revelation that we get here in the Bible, in verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love, begins to make sense. Because divine love isn't a response to someone or something on the outside. God is the source of love. God loves based on his nature. God's love is not based even on your ability or inability to respond to his love. And so John says in verse 8, he who does not love does not know God. For God is love he who does not love does not know God why is John saying this I'm going to suggest to you that there might be a couple of reasons remember what we've already learned in our study that John is speaking to a group of people who are in Ephesus living in the area that in the ancient world was called Asia Minor in the modern world it's called Turkey there were false teachers there who were called the Gnostics and the Gnostic Teachers in Ephesus claimed that they knew God. And John knows that their claims are false. So what does not love mean? You have family and friends. You have people that you know and care about. Unsaved people love their family. Unsaved people love their friends. Unsaved people, if you catch them at the right moment, at the right time, and you were just to bluntly ask them, hey, do you love God? Some of them might even say that they do. So what do you say to them? Or what is it that they lack They say, I love my family, I love my friends, I love my wife, I love my husband, I love my children, I love my grandchildren, I even love God, I love my nation, I love my country. What is it that they're lacking? And I think that the answer is a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's lacking. Warren Wiersbe paraphrases this verse this way. He says, the person who does not have this divine kind of love has never entered into a personal experiential knowledge of God. What he knows is in his head, but it has never reached his heart. I want you to think about the context again. Remember... As John is speaking about this issue, he who does not love does not know God. Love is not the exclusive test. There's the moral test of righteousness. There's the doctrinal test of truth. And so John is bringing all of these elements together. I love God. And John is basically saying, then why doesn't your life reflect that? I love God. How is that possible if you don't embrace the truth? I love God. Then why do you treat people so incredibly bad? You see, John doesn't just simply let people say that. And so part of the challenge that we have as men and women who are in the church and who claim to love the Lord. What about what do we do? What about the churches and the people in the churches whose lives are marked by hatred or a lack of love or dissension or divisions or power struggles or being mean to each other or abusive towards one another or difficult with one another. Remember God's love, true love, divine love is evidenced by fellowship with God. That means potential. Fraternity to God, fraternity among the brethren. Knowing God isn't limited to having prayed a prayer of salvation, of shedding a few tears, a rush of cleansing. It isn't saying, you know what, on March 3rd, 1973, I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. There might have been a time and a moment in time and space where you had some sort of amazing experience with God. You might have even cried real tears and you had a sense of well-being and even cleansing inside of your heart. But according to John, when you know God, when you really know God, if you know God and you have a relationship with God and fellowship with God, then that relationship and fellowship Grows, it matures, it deepens. And so, I read the story of of a heist. There was a large quantity of radioactive material that was stolen from a hospital. And when the hospital administrator notified the police, he said, please, I'm begging you, warn the thief that he's carrying death with him, that the radioactive material can't be successfully masked, blocked, hidden, as long as it's in his possession. It's affecting him physically and disastrously. Now, I want you to think about that. Can you imagine stealing radioactive material? But by the way, can you see it? Can you see the radioactive waves entering your body and splitting the cells? Can you see the radioactivity as it begins to degrade you and then destroy you? Imagine the people that you know who say, I don't have a problem with sin. It's not hurting me. It's not really there. Radioactivity is like sin. You feel like it's not hurting you, but it's killing you. We know that in the real world in which we live, radioactivity, invisible forces can be absorbed by the body. Is it also true spiritually? Are there invisible Forces that can hurt you? And are there invisible forces that can heal you? The person who claims to know God but fails to love, the person who says, I know God, I love God, but they don't absorb God's love. It doesn't become a part of the way that they think. It doesn't become a part of the way that they really live in the very real world. John says, we have every right to question your claims. According to the Bible, God is love. But you see, the culture flips that and begins to think that Love is God. The Bible says that God is love, but the Bible does not say love is God. Especially in the popular culture where they will, with a great big voice, unite in chorus and say, how could you deny people love? How could you deny people the opportunity to love each other? But they're they're not talking about biblical love that is connected to salvation, the revelation of God in Christ and salvation. They're talking about a kind of expression which results in pleasure for themselves. And so when you say, you know what? The Bible speaks of a selfless kind of love versus a selfish kind of love. The fact that God is love is one of the deepest, most profound truths in all of the scripture. But this truth has been beaten and abused. I need you to understand something. When John speaks of God's love, it's always in relationship to the manifestation And the revelation of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, I've told you that the first mention of love in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22. The very first mention of love takes place when God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, who you love, to the place that I'll show you. The first mention of love in the Bible is a father's love for his son. John doesn't leave the phrase God is love to mean whatever you want it to mean. In John's world, God expresses his love In giving, he sends his son. God expresses his love in dying. He sends his son to atone for sin as a real sacrifice. That's what the whole rest of the passage is going to lead us to. A real sacrifice in verse 10. God expresses his love in forgiving. The sacrifice removes sin so that the believers, the beloved, can have confidence in the day of judgment. If you read down in chapter 4, verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. God expresses his love, not simply by the fact that he's removed sin and on the day of judgment. But also because we're made complete in him by his spirit in verse 13. God removes our fears in verse 18. Almost everyone. believes love is important. I dare you to ask everyone you know and everyone you meet to ask this question. Tell me what you think love is. I guarantee you they're going to have an answer. It may not be the answer you want to hear, but they'll have something to say. Ask them what love means to them. Ask how love has been demonstrated to them. Ask them what they think about love. And for the person who believes that love is a feeling, for the person who believes that love is the right to express yourself in whatever way you choose, even though they don't have the Bible's definition of love, they have a definition of love. According to the Bible, the new birth by the Holy Spirit gives us the power to love in the way that the Bible talks about. And that that love that the Bible talks about will always reflect the character of Christ. This is why in Galatians when Paul writes that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is not something that you can see, touch, taste, smell, or handle. But it expresses itself in joy and peace and long-suffering. According to the Bible, your love is reflected in the choices that you make and the actions that you take each and every decision that you make becomes an expression of what you really, truly believe about love. Now we're going to tie the dots together and I'm going to remind you again of what the Bible means when it uses the term love. Remember what love is according to the Bible. It's a willingness to do towards someone else that's in their best interest. And so... John speaks of the source of love, but now he speaks of the son of love. Look what it says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Let's make this simple as we can. If God proclaims his love in verses 7 and 8, God proves his love in verses 9. 10 and 11. I've told you the story when I was a kid growing up, when people would say to me, "God loves you and Jesus loves you," and how I hated that. I got sick of Christians telling me about God and the God is love. And I got really mean. And I said, "Prove it. Prove to me that God loves me. And they would say all kinds of crazy things. Until someone came up with the right answer. Here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This isn't just wishful thinking. A real God sends a real Savior into the world by Christ. Roy Lauren writes, quote, it is true that God is love. But we should remember that the only way it's possible to share in that love is by the new birth. God's love is a filial fact that requires a family relationship. The word filial, of course, means relationship. Filial means father, son, mother, daughter, family. It's a family fact. That requires a family relationship before its benefits can be realized. Roy Lawrence says there can be no practical knowledge or experience of the love of God except through the Son of God in whom that love is revealed. The word of God in which that love is recorded. The love of God was never fully known until Christ revealed it. And the Bible recorded it. The love of God was never fully known Until God, Christ, revealed it and the Bible recorded it. It does not come through physical nature. It's not perceived even in human nature, unquote. Let me be clear what I think Roy Lauren means. Is he saying that when a father says, I love my family, or a mother says, I love my children, that it's not true? I think it is true. But the very fact that they can say it means that they have to borrow from the biblical worldview because it's God. They're created in the image of God. They're created in the image and the likeness of God. God placed within the human heart a desire for fellowship and a desire for love. And I think it's true that physical nature and human nature gives us clues about this love. But the highest manifestation or revelation of God's love is in the person of Jesus. In the beginning of your Bible, or at least in the beginning of the epistle of 1 John, if you go all the way back to the very first chapter and you read the first epistle of John, and you notice that the theme is fellowship, you could write on that page, do you want to know what God is like? question mark And the single word answer is Jesus. Jesus Jesus becomes the absolute way of trying to ter- determine what God thinks and feels towards all of humanity. If God proclaims his love in verses seven and eight, he proves his love in verses nine through 11. In the short verses that John gives, he gives the purpose of love in verse nine. He gives the priority of love in verse 10. He gives us the product of love in verse 11. And so in verse nine, the purpose of love is to demonstrate to us what God really thinks in the person of his son. John has argued that God shows his love by sending his son that we could have eternal life through him. God doesn't simply say he loves us. He doesn't call from the sky. Hey, every human being down there, this is your father up in the sky. Attention, people. I care about you. He sends his son. We as believers don't simply say we love the Lord. We show our love by our actions. Why? 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 John's argument is going to be because this is exactly what your father has done for you. And in the most famous passage in all of the Bible that you see in the end zone at the Super Bowl, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life, the greatest proof of God's love, and the motive for God's love, God sends his Son. And in his son is life. When the Bible says that in him was life, it means life in and of of himself. Let me be clear you have life, but your parents imparted life to you. Some of you who are moms and dads, you've imparted life to your children, and they've imparted life to your grandchildren. I'm dependent, I was dependent on my mother and father for life, and they were dependent on their mother and father, and they were dependent on their mother and father. The Bible's claim is that God is dependent on no one and nothing. And the priority of love is found in verse 10. It says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What John is saying is, God initiates the love, and then He extends the offer of love. You know, as a pastor, I meet people all the time. They come to the church, some single, but sometimes they're couples. They'll introduce themselves as husband and wife. Invariably, I'll ask them this question. Who liked who first? Some of them are a little startled by the question, what? Yeah, which one of you liked the other one first? The wife will look at the husband, the husband will look at the wife. Sometimes the wife will say, he liked me first. Sometimes the other person will say, she liked me first. Every once in a while, they both say, it was a spontaneous explosion of affection. It was like mutual combustion. It was like oil and fire. And when we met, it was just an explosion. When I went on my first date with my wife, she, it was in February. Her birthday was January 31st, and I met her at church. And she said, it's my birthday. Will you take me to lunch? And I said, sure, I'll take you to lunch. And so we went to this Mexican restaurant. And uh, I thought she was safe. I thought it was sort of safe because, okay, I hope she doesn't hear this. She was engaged to be married to somebody else. So I thought it was, you know, it was kind of safe. So after, you know, after the lunch, I, I extend my hand to say goodbye. And she grabs me and she kisses me on the lips. And it was like my lips caught on fire. And I was thinking either this is love or that's jalapeno juice. In the Bible, it makes it abundantly clear who likes who first. It leaves nothing to the imagination. The Bible's proclamation is that God loved you first. He He went for you first. He saw you first. He saw your condition. And he decided that he was going to save you. God made you the priority. God made the first move. God initiated the relationship. And he didn't love you because he felt sorry for you. He didn't love you because you sobbed or sighed or cried. He didn't... He he didn't set his love on you because you were particularly lovable or deserving. And you go, stop. I mean, think about it, pastor. You're talking about me. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, herein is love. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us he set his love upon you when many of you were angry and rebellious and committed to yourself the life application bible has a great comment it says this is the mystery of mercy and the miracle of grace God chose to love a race of rebels and prodigals and it's the kind of love that believers are called to share with the world. Imagine the impact that Christians could have by letting God fill us with this unconditional, redemptive love, a love that actually pursues evildoers until they stop running and then bless them, trust God for the wisdom and courage to love an unbeliever, then take a step of faith to do a concrete loving act for that person, unquote. Can you imagine what would happen if you say, again, like so many people said to me, God loves you. And the person says back to you, shut up! Leave me alone. I don't care about you. I don't care about God. I don't care about the Bible. I don't care for any of this nonsense. Remember, I've told you in high school I was voted most likely to go to hell. And so a group of Christians were picking on me. For whatever reason, they decided that they wouldn't take the best person in the school, they would take the worst person begin to love him and pray for him and then invite him to a Christian concert. You know, someone has rightly said that when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. And when you throw a love bomb on someone and you remind them You know, there's a God in heaven. He thinks about you all the time. He loves you every moment of every day. It's going to be fairly hard to resist that. And even in John's day, people said, I love God. But we're not saved because we love God, but only because he first loved us. Why? John has given us the reason. He's the source of love. How does God's love save us? According to John, God's love saves us through Jesus Christ. He sent his son. It doesn't say he had really warm thoughts. He didn't say, look, I'll make you a deal. Love me and I'll save you. According to the Bible, salvation is never man's search for God, but rather it's God's love in search of you. We're not saved because Jesus lived a holy life or even a lovely life. We're saved not by his example, but we're saved by his sacrifice. And that's why it says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a big, long word. It might be a little threatening and intimidating to some of you. But it simply means to atone. And atonement means covering. Atonement always meant the death of a sacrifice through shed blood propitiation is a word that means to cover, but it also means to satisfy. When you were a kid, did you ever get in like big trouble? And you asked your mother or a brother or a sister or a friend, will you cover for me? Or you've heard in the political circles that when people do something evil and they cover up their crime... That's what this word means. It means to cover it up. But it also means satisfaction. In what way? Propitiation is a word that means that God has been injured by sin, but he is completely satisfied by what God has done in Christ to satisfy our sin. Jesus, you've heard me say, is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. Who has to be satisfied? God has to be satisfied. Our liberal friends, our secular friends will talk about love. They'll sing about love. They'll write about love. But it's always a love that's apart from the redemptive work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. When God speaks of love, it's always in relationship to God's atoning sacrifice through Christ And so if you go all the way back to the gospel of John, this is the same John who wrote our little epistle. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it says this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Jesus says that eternal life isn't just simply knowing about God. It's knowing God, really, personally, intimately. He uses the term eternal life. It isn't just simply living forever and ever according to Jesus. It's loving forever and ever and being loved forever and ever. So I want you to just think about this for just a moment. John believes that love of God is made known by Jesus who covers our sins. And so we discover something that we've always known. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always by grace. Salvation is always by a person. But it's all motivated by love. Look what it says in verse 11. The product of love. Beloved. That's you. If God so loved us. And John's made a powerful case that that's true. We also ought to love one another. In what way did God love us? He loved us without reciprocity. In other words. In what way did God love us? Did did you initiate the relationship with him? No. He initiates the relationship with you. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In what way? I'll have a relationship with that person if they'll have a relationship with me. If that person will come up to me and say hi, I'll say hi back. But the Bible invites you to initiate the relationship. Hi. How are you? You get to extend your hand. You get to make the first gesture. And what else? How else are we to think about this? Jesus loved us without us loving him back. It's clearly human to love those who love us. That's the way you've always operated. That's the way people operate. Can you imagine a person coming up to you and saying, you know, I just love you so much. Immediately in your heart, you think, of course you do. It makes perfect sense that you would love me. (laughs) What's not to love? It makes sense to you that they should love you. At least that's how it is with my grandchildren. They go, of course you love me, Grandpa. What's not to love? But here's the point. God initiates. God then expresses We're born of God, but we still retain Adam's nature, a fallen nature. There are lots of reasons to love each other. Simple obedience is reason enough. Jesus said, love each other. John provides the supreme motive. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're children of God. We should reflect our father's love and character. And that's the point that he's trying to make. When I... Was carrying my grandson around before church, someone came up to me and said, He looks just like you. And I said, Poor kid, what a tragedy. It makes perfect sense to us that our children are going to have some of our physical characteristics. But John is making it abundantly clear that you're children of God. And it makes perfect sense that you should share the spiritual characteristics of your father. And so, in verse 12, it says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Think about what you just read. No one has seen God at any time. Do you know what John is saying? what everybody always knew. The invisible, eternal God is a spirit. He's a spirit being, he's invisible. In John chapter one, verse 18, we read, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. No one has seen God in his essence. No one has seen God in his fundamental being. We are incapable of seeing a spirit being. Now we know that God revealed himself in several manifestations. What theologians call theophanies. In the Old Testament there was a cloud during the day. There was a pillar of fire by night. Moses stumbles onto a burning bush. In every age, even in John's day. There would have been people reading the letter that you're reading and they would have said, show me God. And John would have said, no one's seen God at any time. I can't show you what can't be seen. We can't see God. But we can see God's love revealed in his son. Wait a minute. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father and and we can't even see him. Peter writes, Jesus whom you love having not seen. God is invisible. He's a spirit. Jesus is ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the father. So how in the world is anyone going to be able to see God? John's argument In order for God to be seen, he's going to have to be seen through you. He's going to have to be seen in you. He's going to have to be seen in your acts of kindness, your love, and your encouragement. And so there you have it. Imagine if a person says, I can't see him. Show me God. Show me God and I'll be satisfied. That's exactly what one disciple said to Jesus. Show us the Father and it's sufficient. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you and you don't recognize me? Someone might say, show me God. Give me evidence for God. And there are people who come up with all kinds of arguments. In philosophy, there's the ontological argument, which means you argue from the fact of existence, the idea being that there is such a thing as being, that there's something rather than nothing. And so when the person says, show me God, you can say to that person, explain to me why there's something rather than nothing. Ooh. I want you to show me God and you want me to prove that the reality is real. Or at least to come up with an explanation for it. Yeah. There's the teleological argument, which is the argument from design. So there's an argument from being, and there's an argument from design, and there's an argument from mind, the idea that real people really exist. And so you ask the philosophical question, let's just for purposes of discussion say, nothing becomes something, and this something becomes you. Which is it? Did matter create mind Or did mind create matter? Which makes more sense to you? Did Adam and Eve see God? Did Abraham see God? Did Moses, Isaiah, and Ezekiel see God? According to the Bible, they might have seen manifestations, expressions. But according to the Bible, Jesus is the physical expression of the invisible God. According to the Bible, it is Jesus who has made God known. And then God sends Jesus to come and live inside of you. And so John's argument is, it's your job to make God known. Someone said you're writing a gospel a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write distorted or true. What is the gospel according to you? And in verse 13 look what it says by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Think quickly. In verse 14 John says God abides in us. In verse In verse 12, he says, God abides in us. In verse 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in him. So which is it? uh, He's in us, yes. We're in him, yes. In verse 12, the proof that God lives in us, dwells in us, we love each other. In verse 13, the proof that we dwell in God is the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. In verse 12, the proof is external, real life manifested in real life, real love is manifested in real love towards others. In verse 13, the proof is internal and inward, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Again, Roy Lawrence says in verse 12, it is affection. In verse 13, it's assurance. Assurance. The world will have proof that God dwells in us by the affection we display to one another. We'll have the proof that we dwell in God by the assurance of God's Holy Spirit inside of us. For the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit inside of you says, oh, you really are a Christian. You really love the Lord. You really believe the Bible. The Lord Jesus came in history. Visible, tangible, seen by friends and enemies. And you're here. Able to be seen. By your family and your friends. Both unbeliever and make-believer can claim to know God and love God. But are their claims true? And John says, Do they pass moral test of righteousness? Do they pass the doctrinal test of truth? Do they pass the ultimate test, the relationship test of real love for God and real love for each other? I want you to think about this for just a moment. John is asking us a question and inviting us to consider the answer. If God is love, then what does love explain? What what does this explain? It explains the reason why God created people. It explains the reason why you're the object of his affection. Love explains why God cares for you. Love explains why you're free to choose because love, according to the Bible, requires a voluntary response and love explains why Jesus died for us and love explains why God requires a solution to the problem of sin and love explains why people need eternal life and then receive eternal life because God's love is eternal. And in order for it to express itself in the most powerful way, you have to be eternal. We make God visible by loving each other and by loving those who aren't yet a part of the body of Christ. You know, in our church, we sing a song, The Love of God. Most may not be aware that the author of the hymn found in the last stanza was written on the wall of a place that was normally reserved for the mentally ill. The author of the hymn found this scrawled on the wall of a person who was deeply troubled. Here's what they wrote. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, speaking of Adam and Eve, bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and rescued from his sin. Could we, with ink, the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. We can't exhaust this subject. But here's what we can do we can find someone and we can pray for that someone and we can say to that someone, by God's grace, I'm going to love you the way that Jesus loved me. Amen. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, what an amazing subject. To speak of your love. To walk in your love. To acknowledge your love. To know that love. And then to recognize that we practice it in the most imperfect way. But Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will... Bring someone into our life that we can love them. And again, Lord, not the warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach, but a willingness to say what's right and do what's right towards that person in the name of Jesus. Knowing that God is the source of love and that Jesus is the son of love and that the gospel the gospel the gospel the gospel is the gospel of love that sinners can have their sins covered their sins forgiven in Jesus name amen let's stand or we are